James. Okay. How are you, dude? Um, I'm I'm very well. These are strange times. They are strange times, <laughs> but interesting times. Um, not necessarily what you would wish, obviously, no. but it's extraordinarily interesting <laughs> um, to see stuff. <laughs> Do you remember like Trump saying that he didn't want that boat to dock because then the numbers of people with the coronavirus would double. <laughs> I'm like, mate, like, what are they, what, like, they're, they're on a ship, like, you know, it's, it's not like the number in the world's changed. And so I was just like, oh, Trump. Well, yeah. I, you know, he likes those numbers. He was very clear. Mm. I like those numbers. I don't want to see those numbers, like, go up. But, uh, mm. you know, given given his insistence on it being okay to go to work, even if you're infected, I'm sure he's, uh, he's got a natural grasp of the situation like he extols himself to. As he said, he's a very stable genius, and I don't think anyone could conceivably, you know, dispute that. <laughs> um, all right, so look, this one is on chapter eight of the Way But Why Story of Us series, which is called Idea Labs and Echo Chambers. Um, and I think it might be useful now <laughs> talking about this, but I think looking back, I was going to say to James, like, when I was 20, do I now think, like, does 35-year-old Duncan think that 20-year-old Duncan was ignorant? Like, yes. Not like a little bit, like a lot. Like I'm struggling to see any area that I don't think I had what I consider now to be perhaps ridiculous views. Um, but the, the follow-up question is, did 20-year-old Duncan think he was ignorant? And I'm like, no. And so I was like, okay, therefore, does being ignorant mean you don't know you're ignorant? And I'm like, uh-oh, it does. Therefore, I'm ignorant in certain areas now and I don't know it. So I'm like, oh God, I'm still 20. Is that, is that the case? <laughs> <laughs> well, this, 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 um, this goes on from uh, one of your favorite qu- quotes, people in a cult don't know they're in a cult. Yeah. Uh, and then my build on that is uh, people, crazy people don't think they're crazy. Mm. And uh, so this is another thing. Like by definition, I would, I would think that we don't know what we're ignorant of. Mm. And so this is why something like being able to openly discuss ideas is so powerful because it helps us reveal our own ignorances or blind spots. Mm. I think there's a sort of difference, like knowing that you can't know, um, that it's complicated. So again, there's facts, today's Thursday, idea how to spend your Thursday. Well, you know, fact, there is the coronavirus idea what to do about it. You know, there is a sort of right about what to do about it. Mm. Um, maybe there will be in hindsight, 2020. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's many different views out there. Um, and, you know, who sort of knows? And so for me, I think ignorance is kind of thinking that you know in some respects. Mm. Um, whereas I think perhaps whatever the opposite of ignorance is, thinking like a scientist, is knowing that you can never know. And so if I'm able to shift my mindset that each thing is just learning a little bit about this, you know, thinking about what the best way that this theorem can help me navigate the world and that it helps me, but it also hinders me and that it works somewhere, but it doesn't work everywhere. I think that is, is really maybe not ignorance. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what I think is helpful to apply here, like rather than just ignorance equaling, um, uh, I can't remember what the word you had, but I, I, whether you think it's arrogance or if it's um, something else. My thinking is that you can have ignorance uh, and it just be blissful ignorance without attaching anything else to it. But then there's ignorance and people who think they know. And so Mm. that to me is arrogance. Mm. Um, And so that might be this kind of like, well, ignorance on its own is not, let's, let's just say dangerous because for want of a better example, a lot of animals are ignorant of a lot of things that we as humans are aware of, but that doesn't make them arrogant. They just live instinctually within their own uh, field of awareness. So there's blissful ignorance, and then there's what I would call co- like arrogant ignorance, which is where, to your point, people who think they know, but really <laughs> have not uh, got a firm grasp on the concept, or maybe another way of saying is just the way that you think. Like if mm. you think you know something, then by definition you're being arrogant because, like you said, Duncan, like there, there's a lot in this life that we we can't know. We can only have the best possible idea. Yeah, I think maybe we should get into the sort of core concept of this thing, which is called idea labs and echo chambers. <laughs> and so I think you can have your internal way of approaching things. Like, are you approaching it as a scientist, looking for falsification, looking for how it helps and hinders you, or are you just blindly following it as true everywhere, which is a belief. But an ideas lab, I think, is where you talk to others, where you're looking for independent thought and intellectual diversity, not uniformity, um, where you're sort of trying to be sort of higher mind versus lower mind. 
and then echo chamber is not intellectual diversity it's like just only you know saying the same thing and, and pushing people towards your view mm. um and so to me one of the things i thought was really interesting it's like do you think that you and i were in an echo chamber just us the two of us when we were like 20 or we were in an ideas lab and he would be my retort we were in a negative sum idea lab. <laughs> so, so I think James used to say that people who didn't know us would think that we were fighting um, and that, you know, because there'd be you and I having some intellectual joust. It was probably more like a, you know, a pissing contest, uh, you know, about something. <laughs> but others would be like, okay, these people are having what we could, you know, antagonistic discussion. But now you and I were just having a bit of fun just debating something. But I would say, that, you know, quite a... Uh, not necessarily a nice, friendly fashion. Not that you and I be- didn't become friends, but I personally enjoy our conversations a lot more now. So I think we were in an ideas lab in the past, but a kind of antagonistic one, not a positive someone. Mm, well, I, I get how you're saying it's not it's, it's negative sum in the sense that um, it doesn't necessarily move us forward, but it would definitely positive sum in the sense that we were both very much enjoying ourselves <laughs> throughout yeah. the, the diatribe <laughs> that we would engage in on any given day. Yeah. Um, and the other thing was that the, I guess the principle we engaged uh, in our discourse was based on conquest rather yes. than intellectual exploration, even mm. though we both thoroughly enjoyed it. And even if one person thought themselves a victor, the other person was probably just as convinced of their own <laughs> victorious outcome. So in that in that regard, it definitely wasn't um, this assemblance of this idea lab that we're talking about today. Mm. Um, and I just want to quickly kind of add to your introduction there. So, idea labs, as defined by Tim Urban, is a it's, it's a collection of people who can openly express ideas that can then be challenged. And for the um, the purpose of an idea lab is to try and reveal the best idea, not to find out who's right or wrong, as opposed to an echo chamber where it really is just about finding places that will reinforce your beliefs, that will reinforce um, what it is that you hold to be true. So you're not looking for people to challenge you on your ideas. You're looking for people to think the same way you do so that you don't actually have any opportunity to challenge those beliefs. So Mm. yes, to your question, Duncan, I think it wasn't an echo chamber, but it wasn't an idea lab either. It was mm. just it was just some perverse little um, you know ad- adolescent uh, um, echo lab maybe. <laughs> echo lab, I like that. I think one of the key points of difference is that at school, I don't think that they are wanting intellectual diversity. There is one answer for science. There is one answer for maths or whatever else it is. Even in history, you know, this is the right answer. Um, and so for me now. I think the things worth discussing is not whether it's Thursday or not, it's, it's, it's how to spend your Thursday or not whether the coronavirus is real or not, it's what to do about the coronavirus. Um, and so for me, um, the total phase shift is there's no right or wrong. I don't believe mm. in anything. It's just a constant updating of things. And so one of the things I like, the difference is a finite games versus infinite games. A finite game, there is a winner and a loser and it finishes at some point. An infinite game, it never finishes. And done well, both players want to continue playing. But both players want to continue playing. If one player stops, then it's a finite game, right? Only if they both win from engaging, i.e. it's positive sum. So I would say when you and I were 20, we were playing a finite game. We would pick some topic and we'd just discuss it till someone had won over the other one. It was literally like, you know, trying to lock them in some sort of logic prison. Um, Whereas now... This is a game. You and I are discussing this thing. And I, an infinite one, really like it. And I learned from it. So whilst we were having intellectual diversity in the past, we were doing it with an attempt to try to bury the other person at some point, <laughs> whereas now I'm trying to enlighten the other person. Mm, mm. Yeah, so this reminds me, um, I, I can't remember who it was, but it was on Farnham Street um, or the Knowledge Project podcast from Farnham Street. Mm. And he was interviewing someone about the game of games. or um, Adam, you know, Gra- Adam Robinson. Adam Robinson, that's it. Is that right? The game of, yeah. Life yeah. or something? Yes. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, something around that. But yeah. it was really, really powerful for me. And like Jordan Peterson spoke about this as well, which is um, talking to like, what is the point of teaching your children how to play well? Right? You know how mm-hmm. you, you're always taught when you're little, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you <laughs> play the game. And you're like, that's loser talk. <laughs> 
so true. <laughs> oh, do you want but, a really quick quote I like? This is one of a famous American um, quote. Uh, I think, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. <laughs> There's an American uh, basketball coach. I've forgotten his name. I was just loving that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like thinking about that more deeply, it's teaching you how to think similar to that Templin Duncan of like, it's not about finding the right answer. It's about constantly updating your thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and so like teaching a child about, like, so to, to, this is my recollection of Jordan Peterson's synthesis, which was, um, he believed that you, do, you, you teach a child how to win well, because there's never just one game in life. There is a series of games. Yeah. And so it's about how you move through each of those that you are able to then level yourself up in a constructive way. Um, I think was the way he kind of put it. Yeah, I think another sort of mindset shift is that the world is now positive sum. It used to be zero sum when it was hunter gatherers and there was a fixed amount of food, etc. Now we determine how much food there is. So we collaborate together. So there used to be 400 jobs 200 years ago, now they're half a million. I don't grow my own food. You know, I don't do most things because others do that and specialize. And that allows me to do something more specialized. So to me, the idea is that win win situation. So first of all, there's winning well, which is not like lording it over the other person, but then there's also playing well, which is attempting to have the biggest amount of pi increase, i.e. 1 plus 1 equals 3 instead of 1 plus 1 equals 2.1, Jane, and then splitting it fairly. And so this is, you know, done well, partnering with somebody or playing a game with someone is not an opportunity for them to get one over you. It's an opportunity for them to fleece you. It's an opportunity for you both to get something better than you otherwise wouldn't have gotten before. So that's just really cool. I think you're taught to be defensive or taught to make sure that, you know, look out for yourself or look out for those bad people. And there are bad people, but the vast majority of people, the right strategy is to be a great participant Mm. in a game where you both win. Mm. Yeah. So this harkens back to, um, I think this probably, Duncan, explains a lot why you and I enjoyed board games when we were little because that did have a clear winner. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want the definition of not being a good winner, you just had to see the way that one of us reacted when we did win a board game because we would certainly remind the other person every single encounter Mm. (laughs) that followed on up until the next time we played a game. So Mm. that's definitely not winning well. Mm. Um, But I think it's, it's kind of like the other side of the the puzzle here is part of winning well and playing the game well invites others to participate. Mm. And the value, I think, um, in that, that is kind of like implied is that you you grow more when you involve yourself with others. And so the semblance of like having an idea lab where you can share creative ideas by implication requires other ideas and it requires other people. So like winning and playing well is, a ve- is, is very beneficial to like myself as an individual because it means that others will want to play with me. Yep. I think like, so if you take like an idea lab, intellectual diversity, where that's actually the goal, where people want that, echo chamber, intellectual uniformity. So if mm, life is mm. about playing a series of games or a series of partnerships, right? Our games or partnerships with better ideas where you walk in with intellectual diversity and you get better and you level up your ways of thinking, get better outcomes. So therefore, both sides enjoyed playing the game or at least one plus one equals three you know, versus one plus one equals two and a half. So the more intellectual diversity done well, the bigger the excess value that's being created. Mm. But then if you're a good player, you don't take more than your fair share. So you don't think, well, there's one excess I'm taking 0.9 of it and James is taking 0.1 of it, you know. So to me, an idea lab gets better ideas. And then a good player as part of the idea lab is trying as much as possible to add to, you know, this in a fair and equitable fashion, which means that you get more people wanting to be part of your ideas lab. Mm. So it's it's both things. And I, and I, you know, think that slowly, you know, I've been trying to have that be part of all parts of my life. Mm. Mm. All right. And so this, 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 this speaks to me as one of the core challenges of Idea Labs is like the semblance of the self versus the group. Mm. Uh, and like another way you kind of put it, Duncan, is like, I feel like, you know, if we regress back to our primitive mind, the fire mind, mm. its focus is on the survival of the self or mm. 
you know, how do I get as much of the pie possible rather than focusing on how can I grow the pie that would then, you know, increase my individual slice. And so this, this, um, it, this internal struggle between my primitive mind wanting to make sure that I can get as much for myself, you know, and, you know, we see this play out in yep. people wanting to get as much toilet paper off the shelves as possible. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to, if we put ourselves in a position where we can all think collectively on how can we approach something and share ideas openly and figure out, you know, what holds what holds ground, then things will work out better for all of us. You know, it's kind of like the the, the prisoner's dilemma on a societal mm. scale. Mm. Yeah, I think one nice articulation of intellectual diversity is free speech. So mm. that means that anyone's allowed to say whatever they want. Now, there are some things that's not good, like basically straight up lying. Like James is a horrible person. No, I mean, I don't know. James, <laughs> don't, James stole money from me or something. And if he didn't do it. So that's not allowed straight lies. But saying that James's clothes are real bad today and, and someone else being like, no, I like James's clothes today. You know, that, you know, that's the sort of thing. But it's like, okay, we should do nothing about the coronavirus or we should do something about the coronavirus. Or for instance, we should do nothing about immigration or we should have no immigration or we should have like huge immigration as an example. So to me, a corollary of that is free speech. And at, at a sort of country level, you want an ideas lab, not just between you and your friends or you and your family or you and your company. And I remember thinking, oh, free speech, best idea ever. And then I would hear someone saying something, which I just thought was not great. Like, um, <laughs> I don't know, um, that climate change is a hoax. <laughs> um, and I'm like, all right, we need to outlaw that, you know, which is exactly the opposite of free speech. So it's kind of like, I like an ideas lab as long as your ideas conform with my ideas. <laughs> And I'm willing to have 10% disagreement with my ideas, but I'm sure as hell not willing to have 100%, you know, diversity here. And so yeah. and this, this is this weird dichotomy. Um, yeah. So I don't know how you felt about it, but I realized that I was being quite duplicitous. Yeah. So, so to me, this is the, the, um, the conflict between the self and the group. Like, as an individual, I think free speech is a great idea. Yeah. As a collective, I think there should be some further strangleholds on you know people <laughs> extolling some really really bad ideas. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, that is the value of free speech. It's mm. that it encourages or it almost compels this concept of an idea lab to be the the operating system on which a society functions. Um, and yes, and and one of the reasons why I think. Uh, you know, the founding fathers put it, put this word in writing that free speech is an inalienable right is because it's so hard to maintain, right? If you think about when, uh, like, um, this was first written, like, echo chambers was the dominant or system of order. Like, mm. you had very, very, um, you know, you had, what are they called? Monarchies, and you had um, <laughs> powerful religions, which is like yeah. the Catholic Church, basically. And so for them to go the other way and say, like, here, we believe there is a different way of operating and that is encoded in free speech mm. is actually really, really hard to maintain, I think. Yeah. And I think there are many things which people will look back on. Like, do we look back on people even like in the 50s and think, oh, my God, they had some ridiculous views. Like, everyone has done that. We will hopefully look back on ourselves in 50 years and think that. Otherwise, we've somehow gotten high on our own supply and, you know, no longer wanting to actually you know, listen to others. And so for me, we want as much intellectual diversity as possible. And that means allowing people to say things which you don't think. Now, now again, straight falsehoods, not cool. Um, but having a different view on abortion, having a different view on immigration, as an example, um, having, you know, is totally fine. And what I think is, is sort of interesting is that people think of themselves as more progressive, say they're on the left, and that, you know, we should, I don't know, do more for immigration as an example. But then they will go and deplatform somebody and they mm. will yell and mm. scream at them. And I don't see uh, people on the right going and yelling and screaming and shutting down someone I'm talking from the left. Does that make sense? So there are definitely hard left and hard right. Um, but it's funny. Like the sort of people on the left, I think, are far more doing deplatforming than people on the right. Yeah. But yeah. they would see themselves as the liberal, you know, peace, you know, hippies, 
you know, the, you know vegans. And I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> oh, you just nailed that cat. I know that's not good. I'm I'm partially <laughs> vegan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of center left, I would say. What, what enlightened um, thinking there, Duncan? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've, just, I've just really yeah. annoyed somebody what? and done some like, you know, really yeah. labeling. And sorry, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have chosen my words a little more choicely there. Yeah. But gonna, I think it's funny that they've got a more weaponized um, yeah. they're gonna come culture out, of, against free speech, I think. They're going to come out and yell at you, Duncan, and then yeah. run straight back into their safe space. <laughs> uh. Yeah, so. Um, and I think this is kind of always coming back. Well, this comes to me back to the core aspect of your primitive mind and your higher mind. Mm. Um, and what I really, really, really love that helps kind of like give context to this is in one of the graphs of this article, uh, Tim Irvin put in, um, you know, the two spectrums that we talked about last week, like what you think, which is a spectrum. Um, you know, so like abortion should be outlawed all the way up to, um, you know, whatever the opposite of that is, like, you know, women's <laughs> total right to choose their bodies. <laughs> and then how you think across the Y axis, yeah. at the bottom is primitive yeah. echo chamber like thinking, and at the top is higher mind ideal lab like thinking. Mm. And on this particular graph, he has all of these safeguards that the people have put in place, like a net or a helicopter with a ladder on it, or yeah. a platform, to keep them up in the top level of maintaining this ability to have more scientific and idea lab type thinking. Yeah. And, and that, that crystallized it for me because what that suggests is reverting back to your primitive self is like gravity. And so if you don't put in specific safeguards or measures to ensure that you continue to think at the higher level, like a constitution or like, you know, a friend who reminds you like, dude, you're, you're thinking like an ignorant prick, <laughs> <laughs> then it's going to be easy for you to revert back to your primitive mind. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I think so. I, you know, I think the best things in life get better because you make them get better and that there's no ceiling. It's not because you've got a fancier car or, you know, a better job title. So as an example, I think James and my friendship has gotten better and that there's no ceiling and it gets better because we make it better. But one of the key things from this is, I think one, we've read and learned more about the world than we knew before. So we have more topics to talk about, but also we talk about them in a much better way than before. So much more ideas lab, much more infinite game, mutually, you know, both winning, as opposed to trying to have a finite game of one of this you know, person winning or not. So I think the culture has fundamentally shifted with, within our friendship. And this is like extraordinarily cool. And it's it's almost like unrecognizable the way that we talk now versus 20 year olds us. Like we were like playing, you know, video games, board games. It was almost everything was a fine game. Like, you know, talking games, like, you know, go out conquest games, you know, you know, et cetera. Um, it's almost everything was a finite game, winner, loser. And I think when you're a bit younger, you know, you're trying to sort of figure out your value in the world and try to hope that you have some value. And I think school is a game. You know, what mark are you going to get? And then you play sport and it's a game. Um, and so you're really have these external measures which you're trying to prove yourself against. But now mm. there's not like there's a surplus amount or there's some sort of fixed amount of like goodness to go around. And if I get some of it, James gets less of it. It's like, no, no, we can both help make each other's lives better. Mm. And the better I do at making James's life better, I'm also making my own life better. And it's like super friggin' awesome. Yeah. So I believe we're more and more in an ideas lab. And I believe that I used to think that there was an answer, but now I don't think that there is, or at least I don't believe. And I'm sure that in certain places, I think there is something, but I'm trying very hard to never think that. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, I completely agree with all of that. But I think maybe if I could, um, you know, in an idea lab setting, speak mm. in defense of, uh, you know, 15 <laughs> year old James and Duncan yeah. is that I actually think the way in which we conducted ourselves was very, very conducive to a, um, a healthy mindset. And let me explain why. Okay. It was, um, it was zero sum or negative sum in the constrained aspect of the single interaction. So whether we played a mm. board game and whether or not we played um, mind games on each other in an argument setting, 
but it was positive sum in the longitudinal aspect because we never mm. because our friendship grew mm. and all of this was based on the notion that we were playing mm. and that's what i think was in in like incredibly important and valuable for children to have mm. is this notion of play and so that was your and like yours and mine yours and i uh, <laughs> that was our construct of playing and it's and it, if you look at it um in the same lens of like a game of games or um you know mm. a, a series of games each individual game the outcome didn't matter yeah but over the long term it would actually way 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 positive sum because you know it's not like we hated each other <laughs> yeah. or, or liked each other less it was the other it was the opposite direction so even yeah. though speaking now that we've grown through that and yeah. have come on come across to the other side and in, interact differently and we now have a new series of games yeah. and maybe they're positive some individually and positive some longitudinally mm. i think um that earlier notion of play and the way in which that we chose to engage that i think mm. was still very very um beneficial i agree i like that like there wasn't a point where i was like i don't want to catch up with james but i remember like there were certain games that you were better at and certain ones that i was better at um, and and so yeah, I remember like I don't know I think like James is better at strategic than I was on average so he'd probably win like seventy five percent of the time and I knew coming into this that like that was the past track record and so you know I don't know all else equal I enjoyed the games I lost less <laughs> than the, the ones where I won um, but I think what's really interesting we're just sort of talking about is that it never got to this point like if you look back almost so I think some friends is just being supportive for each other and, and listening there or whatever. And it's almost like we were exact opposite. I mean, we weren't not supportive, Joan, or like, I believe in you. It was like, we were just playing game after game, whether it was verbal jousting on a topic, whether it's playing poker, whether it's playing video games or whatever else it is. It'd even be like freaking going for a swim and then trying to catch more waves than the other person or something. Like yeah. it was almost every single thing was a game. And that I think that what's really cool is that we also didn't lose belief in ourselves. And maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but like, did you ever become disheartened? Like I, you know, would, I don't know, lose to James, you know, 75% of the time in certain games, but I'd always walk in and I'd be like, F this, I'm going as hard as possible with this game and I'm not effing losing. <laughs> and so it wasn't a point where I started to lose belief in myself. It was just a like, F this piece of poo, I'm going to, get one over him this time or something. <laughs> so to, I suppose maybe the second, did you like one, start to dislike me at all or, whatever, or two, lose belief in yourself? No, no. So that's, I think was um, quite to, to, to the point is that there were most of the things, like 75% might be a bit generous. Like it might be like, you know, anywhere between 55, 60%. So 55, what is it? 45. <laughs> oh no, dude. <laughs> You're not, I almost up. said, I almost said this one, it's like, it's like, um, <laughs> two. Yeah. Oh, yeah, give me the, give me the calculator. Yeah. All right. Yeah, go on. So, oh, thank you, Duncan. You just given me my, um, counter exa uh, uh, example. So most of the things that we engaged in, it was close. It was close enough for it to be interesting, mm. but there were things that one of us was clearly superior. And so my example, I'm going to give it that Duncan is clearly better at me than Matt. <laughs> <laughs> and so like it, it was almost like a non-starter we wouldn't even bother like engaging in those particular areas in a sporting or um, antagonistic way it was only when it was close enough for it to be interesting and that was what was so much fun about it because even if you were marginally better than me that inspired me compelled me to bring my a game the next time like i want to beat duncan because mm. he's a little I think this is really interesting articulation and whether it's playing like Magic the Gathering or other stuff, so much oh, of our man. catching up was a game of some kind. And mm. I didn't sort of think of it in that way, but because we're the same age, you know, um, you're basically playing often someone uh, within. So I think Peterson says that, you know, when, uh, you know, rats play with each other or dogs play with each other, so they'll play fight as an example and mm. even the more you know physically dominant dog will let the other dog win like a quarter or more of the time and if they don't let them win playing then the other one doesn't want to play so there's some percentage of 
playing where the other person wins, where the other person's will breaks or whatever, and then they refuse to play anymore. But I think if you think about it, um, from large strategy games through to sort of much more, uh, you know, like it was a computer game, like whatever, Red Alert, um, through to much more number ones, we were kind of playing games and leveling each other up constantly, but not, you know, trying to break the other person. And so I, I think we never lost belief in ourselves, which is really cool. And I think some other people just catch up and I don't know what they do. Um, but <laughs> it, it, it was like, what did we do that wasn't playing games? Maybe we watch TV, but like, that's is about it. Did we do anything that wasn't playing games? I'm not playing a single thing. <laughs> no, I think that was kind of like what everything was predicated on. So it's almost like a testament to us that we managed to um, evolve from that uh, particular um, you know, mindset, so to speak. I remember you said, come over on Friday and we'd sit down and play a game of Strategio followed by a game of Monopoly and then straight into like Nintendo or something. So there's like there's like a literally a ritual for like it's like just game game immediately, <laughs> um, and I don't know what other people did. Um, and, you know, I had other friends where we didn't do as much of that. Some of it was just like stuffing around or whatever. But if you think about it, also people might go skating or go on a skateboard, and then they're all trying to like I don't know do some jump, and it's the same thing. It's a game. It's a game. It's a game. Hmm. 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 So what can we learn from this that helps? I guess explain more about the value of an idea lab versus cultural uh, uh, eco chamber um so one of the... <laughs> echo chamber so, what? what's wrong with eco chamber <laughs> <laughs> an eco chamber is like a little greenhouse and it's like probably a good thing <laughs> um, echo chamber thank yeah. you Deb. Thank yeah, whatever. um pronouncing things is one thing that Duncan slightly got a hold over me as well it, it would seem apparently obvious so um, I think the first correlation is this idea of a game of games. Mm. And um, the, the game of games, I think one of the core litmus of that is that everybody benefits if you can learn to play the game well. Over Infinite positive sum game, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a, and the other idea about, around what I, I think was helpful from our childhood was it wasn't whether you won or lose. It, it, it really didn't matter. Even though you took that opportunity to gloat and like, you know, <laughs> humiliate the other person, that yeah. wasn't actually what was important. I think where we took far more enjoyment was seeing ourselves improve. Mm. Like whether we got better at playing a particular game because, you know, you beat me before and now and I got to win this time. Or we can see ourselves increase our skill sets in a certain area, like um, you know whether it was surfing, uh, skiing, or Mario Kart kind of thing. And that to me is a direct crossover to the idea lab, where it's not about whose idea wins; it's about how ideas are constantly challenged by each other and they strengthen as a result of that. Mm. I think maybe just extending this idea of games. Um, to me, you know, I think it was very clear when you're playing whatever Nintendo that it's a game. But I think school, in some respects, is also a game, like math game and the science game. I did not enjoy those games. <laughs> you know, I did them and they were attacks. Um, and I kind of thought that work would be like school, this thing that I did because I had to do it so I wasn't homeless living on the street, you know, but yeah. if I had enough money to work, I wouldn't do. Yeah. But now, if you think about the world as through the lens of a game, and I know this is a sort of reductive way of looking at things in some respects, the best game I've ever played now is work. And it's not a game that I don't enjoy. It's the most rewarding, most complex, infinite game multiplayer. You know, this job of Ed Roller has been seven years now. And now there's over 100, you know, employees slash game players. Um, and working together in a way which both sides are grateful for, like sort of everyone, it's mutually positive sum. And I think and this is a sort of good analogy. If you're playing AFL or whatever, you might need to be fit, but you also don't need to learn how to mark the ball or to kick the ball. And so it's like slowly getting more and more skills um, so that your ability to be a valuable player improves constantly. But you're not born good or bad at it. It's just all how well you can improve and level up and mm -hmm. how well you can kind of set the kind of culture of the game and the rules and conditions. And so to me, the best game I've ever played is a roller. And it's almost so good that it's too, you know, sometimes I'm like, too rewarding, too interesting. Um, you know, there's, maybe sometimes it's like the deadlines or something. But bored or disinterested is never something I've really felt in seven years. 
what I've actually wanted is boredom because <laughs> the game is so intense and so interesting that you want the time to sort of downtime. Whereas before I had boredom was a problem. Now boredom is the problem I wish to have. Oh, and man. so do you think that like for you, I, I think James, you know, has a family with children and other stuff. And I don't, I, mean, I think my friendship with James is a game in some respects and it's the best, very, you know, I think the game we play is better than it's ever been. But like, do you think of the work as a game is, is an analogy that's fair or what do you think? I think the analogy is fair um, in all walks of life. Like, yeah, work is a game. Uh, your personal health is a game. Your, <laughs> your family life is a game. And, um, you know, to kind of add to your commentary, my favorite game at the moment is by far um, my family life. Mm. Uh, because it's just so, <laughs> it's like level 11. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, each each day it's like there's a new playing field and there's a new boss character and there's a new challenge. But it's fun. It's not like something that's like overwhelming and draining and taxing and all that kind of stuff. It's just yeah. so much fun. Yeah. Every, like at this stage when uh, my children, who are both still under five, um, the, the rate of change is still quite dramatic. And so I almost feel like every day I meet two very different people. Um, <laughs> And it and and what comes with it is just very different ways of interacting and exploring and growing and all of these different kinds of things. Like just you know, one semblance that I can talk to that you hinted to there is boredom. Now I've done a lot of reading on the concept of boredom and how um, some people believe that it's we've robbed our children of it because that they are constantly stimulated now, uh, and a lot of adults too are scared to be bored they want to be stimulated a lot of the time and that's why <laughs> even myself will always be looking at a screen when James there's a lot of self-stimulation but when um, when my four-year-old comes up to me and says says oh dad I'm so bored I don't think like oh my god what do I need to do to um, you know to give her some amusement or anything like that I turn around and I'm like sweetheart that is the Best thing ever. Mm -hmm. I am so happy to hear that you're bored mm -hmm. because now I can't wait to see what you'll think of next. Mm, that's nice. I, I think that's really also like some parents, are, you know, you know, it's more like your their housemates and they're not really playing at all with their children, you know, and playing a game, you know, like it's just, okay, well, the, the game is clean nappy and make sure they don't starve to death, but not necessarily <laughs> trying to add upside. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's just removing yeah. downside. And I think one of the things I've sort of seen with you, and we sort of talk, you know, not on the podcast as much about the different, you know, approaches that James might have or whatever. So there was like the Izzy, you know, game and then the Chloe game came along as well and I played both of them at the same time and then watched them together. But I think this is this sort of fun, like you get to find as much interest and reward. So saying that like the best things get better because you make them better. Mm. James and my friendship gets better. Not because we've, you know, Nintendo have released a new game now you know it's because mm. we've found a way to make the game that we play with each other better and better and i think similar with your you know two girls it's it, it's better and i think with work as well like you're the limit and so when you realize that it's as fun as you make it it's as interesting as you can find interest that switched from the past where i used to have a deficit of interest and then i'd get bored to now where i have a surplus and i never get bored and so boredom is what I want to have where I've just got some sort of off time. And so it, it's a really nice way of doing this. Like done well, it's a game that you want to continue playing indefinitely that's positive sum for both sides, not a burden that you have to do, which was what school felt like for me. Mm. Well, so like completely agree. And one of the things I think that always resonated with me was um, you know, what the, the stoic quote that I'm talking about is the obstacles the way. Um, mm -hmm. But what they talk about in, in, in greater context is, you know, things only have meaning that which we decide to attribute them to. And I guess when you talk about life being a series of games, like not everybody necessarily sees it that way. So for one person, what could be a overbearing or overwhelming obstacle, someone else can see that as a challenge. And I think when you look at it in... Uh, in that particular lens instead of oh why is this thing here to stop me from getting what i want as opposed to great there's something i want and this thing is in front of me to test just how badly i want to get it <clears throat> or to take to 
um, there is something that I want or and I now know what I need to do in order to develop myself enough in order to achieve that. Mm. I think that I used to think that like life was about playing the chess game well. But then I realized that you don't have to, you can actually make the rules. It's not set rules and you just need to like do the best you can. This you is can always why Duncan won chess because he was always uh, <laughs> rules on the spot. <laughs> but, but you can give new rule moves to the pieces. You can make new pieces. You can make new boards. And I didn't realize that. So James and my friendship is not better because we've stopped pissing each other off. It's better because we have new things to do, right? And we've changed the board you know, about what we talk about and how we do things from a finite game where we're talking about the topic and at the end, one person has to be right or wrong. So we just talk about a topic and it will never be done. You know, there is no such thing as right or wrong. Um, and this is really cool. And so the, the analogy of a game obviously helps and hinders some. It's not like I think life is a game and that's perfect everywhere. But in yeah. the game, I now believe that I have an ability to change pieces, moves and rules massively. Whereas I had no concept of that you know, 10 years ago. Hmm. Well, I think one of the things that's probably worth explore, um, exploring here or m moving on to is it's really, really fun to play a game when everybody playing it understands the same principles and play the game in the same way, much to, you know, what a friendship would, I guess, entail. Where it becomes difficult is when it involves more people and the semblance of, understanding that everyone involved is now playing the game the same way becomes much harder to discern. Uh, and I think this is where, um, you know, idea labs particularly are really difficult to maintain because while it's really great to think about, you know, I see life at the game of games, Duncan sees life at the game of games, and we're playing this together in, in, the, in the same spirit, if we're suddenly put into a room with a hundred other people and we have no idea about their mindset or their approach to a certain thing, that becomes a lot more difficult to manage. Hmm. I think this is sort of this weird thing. I was like, are you in an echo chamber hmm. if you say that you are definitely in an ideas lab? <laughs> so by definition, being certain about something or you know, is is being in an echo chamber. And I think there's the difference is that there's a kind of one layer removed. It's kind of like the first derivative. When you are saying that you can't ever know, that's different to thinking that there is an answer. And so it's definitive about being not definitive. <laughs> and so it's this sort of weird dichotomy. And so one thing I sort of realized is that I'm always going to have places where I'm in an echo chamber. I'm always going to have like bits where I think I'm open-minded, but I'm not. I'm closed-minded. And you can see this in people that I sort of really respect. So I think we're both fans of Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. But I think both, in my opinion, uh, in, I don't know, echo chambers in certain places. <laughs> um, and so an example is like Peterson saying on a podcast that he went through and he'd reviewed all of his way he'd spoken in all the interviews and that he thought that he had done this in a good way with good tone. And I was like, are you for real? Um, you know, your tone can come across as so angry at certain points. And to me, I think you're making very good points, but you don't need to do it in an angry fashion. Um, and despite if someone's being antagonistic to you, you know, that doesn't mean you respond with antagonism. You know, this, you know, an eye for an eye and the world's blind. Uh, and so I think that they're, you know, intellectual powerhouses. And I think that if they've got blind spots, then sure the hell I do. Mm -hmm. Well, it, like, exactly right. And I think that, um, you know, Going back to your original point, if you are certain that you're in an idea lab, then are you really in an echo chamber? <laughs> so, so I think like, what is this concept anchored to? To me, it's anchored to how you think, not necessarily what you think. Mm. What you think is irrelevant. How you think, um, I believe, can determine where you are on that spectrum. And so yeah. as soon as you say, I know, doesn't matter what comes next. Yeah. That, that, that assertion yeah. gives us understanding of the way you're thinking. Mm. And so you can immediately be relegated to the echo chambers of the, <laughs> the lower rungs of thinking. It's about, you know, starting off with like, well, I don't know, but I, I'm open to the possibility mm. that can then give, I guess, an opening to exploring different ideas because... Mm. I don't know, 
um, when I am in an echo chamber versus an ideal lab. Mm. That doesn't mean, oh, I must be an ideal lab person, thinking person, yay me. It's just the start. It's almost like a, that, that gets you on the chessboard. But now mm. it's about how do you move through that particular world? Yeah, I, th I think it's sort of really interesting. So this is, you know, how I'm trying to conceptualize it at the moment. There are little theorems that help you navigate the world better than not having them, which is right. And that they help you, but they also hinder you and they work somewhere, but they don't work everywhere. And what I'm trying to do is to sort of upgrade the theorems, you know, over time. So just like there was Newtonian physics and then there was relativity and there's quantum mechanics and there's string theory and then there'll be, the, you know, whatever that comes next, right? Um, it's the same thing. It's like, okay, well, how do I think about my friendship with James? Um, okay, well, we're going to play little games where there's a winner and a loser to we're going to play games which never end and there's hopefully both of us can win, you know, to whatever else it is, right? And to me, there's some times where you're trying to do little updates. It's like, oh, 10% improvement, 10% improvement. But then there's other times where you realize the theorem has got a fundamental flaw. Like you've been building it along and you're slowly getting it better and then you're like, oh my God, there's something which just breaks this. Not only is it a little bit needed to update, it actually just is totally false. Not fa totally false is the wrong word. It's like wildly more hindering than helping. And so I love that, that sometimes it's like update, update, update. And others like, oh my God, destroy. Destroy that core theorem that you've been building for ages. Mm. Yeah. And so like, that is the spirit of scientific thinking mm -hmm. based on my understanding. Right? You, um, what I love about scientific thinking, having not a really well-rounded understanding of any of it, but um, is that you can never prove anything. You can only disprove your theories. Right? There, are, there are theories and then, there's the, then there is the ability to disprove these theories. So everything we have in the scientific literature that still stands up today are simply theories, not facts, but theories that have not been able to be disproven. And I, I think like, and it, it's really, like you can really tell when you're talking to a scientist versus um, some other form of individual because they are always questioning their own um, their what like their own ideas or the, the, the their position on a particular topic because they're actually trying to look for ways to strengthen their ideas and the only way well to me the best way that you can mm, strengthen ideas is scientific in your words at the real time uh, um, is to try and disprove them because if you can't if if some if you throw something in an idea in attempting in attempt to disprove it and it fails then that idea gets stronger because you now have an extra notch in your belt in terms of understanding what this can stand up against mm. i thought i'd give you an example of destroying a belief from me um so i, I believe you know the mission of ed Rollo is to improve education and so all else equal more improvement is better than less improvement so i think we'll make as much improvement as possible and so until about four years ago, my modus operandi was, well, to get the most improvement, you try as hard as possible on the inputs, like pushing as hard as possible. But then what I've come to believe and is that actually being as calm as possible on the inputs is better. Calm, for instance, means you give yourself the time to be creative. You're not trying to get to a solution as fast as possible. Mm. Calm means that instead of spinning your wheels and doing four you know, steps to only go two steps forward, you do two steps, but you go two steps forward. And so in the sort of same time, and so I realized, oh my God, I, I've actually been expending excess energy. And yeah, I've definitely run 100 meters, but I've only gone 20 meters forward. Well, how about I run 40 meters and go 40 meters forward? And at that time, I'm sort of more relaxed. And so this was like, oh my God. In, in some respects, pushing as hard as you can is almost the opposite end of being as calm as you can. It's literally the <laughs> other end of the spectrum. And I was like, uh-oh. This, this, I think this is not the worst thing. And I think also, like, you know, pushing is hard. Like, you know, I had, I believe, the right overall goal, making a difference. Yeah. But I think that that for me meant that, you know, I felt disappointed in myself at the end of the day that I didn't get more done. Now I'm kind of happy if I've ended the day and I feel calm, you know, <laughs> whereas, you know, the opposite was like feeling not calm, you know, was good at the end of the day or something. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Like, from, from that example alone, I definitely had a core belief that, um, I would never like, not that I was never enough, but I, I wasn't doing enough. I always mm. felt compelled that I need to do more, that I had to be, um, uh, generating more output. I had to be doing more things in the hours where there's spare time, blah, 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 blah. Um, 
until kind of similar to you, Duncan, I stopped looking at the inputs and I started looking at the outputs. And yeah. right, or, or, or more pointedly, the outcomes. What were my desired outcomes? And so when I started thinking about, well, my desired outcomes is that, you know, I want to be, you know, fulfilled at work and home, but also feel like that I'm just making progress. Not that mm-hmm. I have to necessarily get everything over the line by the end of any particular day. And that, like, I think my core belief was that I was input driven rather than outcome driven. And mm-hmm. just, just thinking from that particular perspective has changed the way I approach things, like for me significantly. Yeah, another one, um, I, I know you said core belief, for now I'm like, no, no, an idea or theorem that I think helps me more than it hinders me that I will update, you know, you know, slowly or sometimes go the direction was that for machine downtime, for machines, downtime is a bug. For humans, it's a feature. So I used to kind of feel that if I wasn't working or reading or talking to someone, that I wasn't upgrading myself or getting stuff done, and that was time that was wasted. Yeah. And then I kind of was like, okay, well, meditation, you know, that's good. Well, I'm allowed to do meditation, but that was productive doing nothing time. Do you know what I mean? And so the only time I was doing nothing was meditating. And so, but now last night, I would just I had a good day yesterday, and and I got home, and I was just like. I really want to just, I'm really interested in the coronavirus at the moment. I'm like, no watching about the coronavirus or reading about the coronavirus. Just go for a walk and no listening to a podcast on this. And just try to like, you know, let your mind, your subconscious talk to you and just, you know, be able to spend some time hopefully reflecting in what a good day was. And it's sort of just talking to you rather than you trying to examine it. Um, so I went for a 40 minute walk um, and, you know, was not trying to think about something or nut something out and not trying to pull my phone out and write notes. And so it was downtime, but that downtime means that I'm more relaxed. It means that I sleep better. It means that then I can be calmer, you know, when I'm doing things because I'm not like overloading my plate and trying to digest, you know, four times the amount of stuff that I can digest in a sort of, you know, healthy fashion. And so downtime used to be nothing. And then downtime was only meditation. And then I would do some downtime when I, you know, it was just too much. And then I felt guilty during the downtime. So it wasn't exactly very good downtime. And now I'm like, nah. The, the, there is a purpose for this and the purpose is so that you can do better in this thing so actually doing nothing allows you or downtime to do more and i'm like what less hours equals more done and like computer does not make sense you know ah, 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 try harder yeah. <laughs> error error yeah, error, error. <laughs> well it's always fun listening to duncan talk about how he tries to parent himself like <laughs> that's a nice thing you should be a parent to yourself treat yourself as you would treat your child oh that's a, uh, yeah so um just on that one of jordan peterson's 12 rules for life is like look after yourself like you would look after your dog yeah, yeah and, and at, 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 the, at the first glance that sounds dehumanizing but at the, but when you really think about it like you know when you have a pet, when you have your a dog um, like myself, you would do just about anything to make sure that it's always happy and healthy. And it's startling. And I think he cites some literature that talks about people who get prescribed medication and how infrequently they will actually go and submit that prescription and then actually take the medicine as directed. Mm. Like, you know, we will do this for others, but not for ourselves. So um, mm. I think that is very important. So. Good on you, Duncan, for being a good self-parent. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think this idea, like maybe not core beliefs, maybe we call them core values. I don't know. Um, I think, you know, theorems. Because a value is still something you sort of believe in. If you change your values, you're some horrible person. So it's like, I've updated this theorem. So one end of the spectrum is a theorem. And the other end mm. of the spectrum is a belief. These well, are things I- that work for you. You don't work for them. These are things but- that are not part of your identity. Your belief isn't part of who you are. This is a thing that is kind of helping you navigate the world better than not. Yeah, true. But um, like maybe to like put ourselves in an idea lab here, <laughs> I would posit that a value is necessary for us to take action, right? So if you look at um, Jordan Peterson's hierarchy, um, everything requires a decision. Like every every action is actually ranked on a hierarchy of what he would call values. You know, like either Duncan and I could decide to catch up at um, this time of the day, or we could decide to instead continue working. Mm. Uh, the decision in doing that was based on a hierarchy of values. Um, and so I like, well, to use Jordan Peterson's description or his example, 
So I think that there does need to be something more than just a theory because there's something personal to it then. Because a theory might actually be something that could be universally applied rather than something that works for Duncan in this particular context. So it's a, it, it could be a value, it could be a principle, um, if, if, if not a belief. But I think there's got to be something that drives us from a point um, that we hold to be more true than something else. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I think maybe after this we should do a summary. Um, but I think the concept of values makes sense, but I think the word value comes with something that you shouldn't change. So value is meant to be something that you are and you never change from that. I think that's the embedded meaning. So mm. I would say that people should have priorities, that people should care about things, but that your priorities should probably shift over time and that the amount that you care about something can go up and down. Yeah. But that the story underlying a value is 100% adherence 100% of the time, which to me is the kind of opposite of thinking like a scientist or an ideas lab with intellectual diversity. And so I just, I, I like the sentiment of what you're saying, but I think the word choice mm. is crucial. Um, and so you don't have beliefs, you have theorems that help you, you know, you don't have values, you have priorities and things you care about. Now, you might say that they're sort of similar, and I think that they are, but one allows flexibility. You need to give yourself enough rope to be able to change your mind gracefully and to be able to do the same for others. And the other one doesn't. It's backing people into a corner. Hmm. You say that with the, the, the mind of an absolutist, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm absolute about not being absolute. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, well, with that being said, it's almost time for us to wrap things up. So I think we should try our best to summarize. All right, Jamie. Um, all right, I'll, I'll go first. So um, this was one of my favorite um, articles. You wouldn't know it based on our colorful conversation just now, having gone off on a much more deeper and richer um, tangent. But this, con this concept of idea labs and echo chambers um, is based on um, how you think. At least this has been uh, a revelation for me in just this discussion today. So Idea Labs, Tim Irving would posit, is a, a place where you can openly share, discuss, and have discourse over your thoughts or ideas or concepts or theorems. And an echo chamber, which reflects the more primitive mind, is somewhere where you want to have your thoughts and ideas reinforced, where you want to have your beliefs upheld, where you want to simply surround yourself by people who think like you. Mm. Um, so what I really uh, valued out of this and what I learned a lot more about my friendship with Duncan today is the way in which that we um, went through our lives um, from early childhood is that we engaged in this semblance of, whether unconsciously or not, of a game of games. And that mm. was that we kept on playing mini games where the winner wasn't in a significant sense important, but it was important in how we tied those series of games together because I feel like that leveled us up in a very compelling way. And it was in one sense just because we enjoyed it and we continued to play. But I think in another sense, I feel like it primed us to in in how we thought, mm. in the in the way we thought. It it I think it taught me that the game or the, the individual instant or the single event wasn't important. The outcome's not important. The idea that you conceive of is not important. It's how you play it over a long series of games. And I, and I think that I have a lot to thank for that. And so thinking now how Duncan and I interact in a much more explorative and a much more open and curious way like just today thinking about, well, how do we want to actually, um, you know, think about ways in which we base things in a belief or a value or a theorem or a um, behavior. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think the last one was sort of about how you think in individually. Are you thinking in internally like a scientist or like a zealot? Um, and this one is, well, how do you respond to the beliefs? So belief is the wrong word. The ideas and thoughts and comments of those around you. So internally, you're hopefully having an ideas lab, but then externally, you're hopefully having one too. Um, and to me, this is a concept that I don't think, well, I think the almost opposite was indoctrinated during school, that an ideas lab is good for you. So somebody saying that they have a different point of view on immigration or whatever else it is, 
is good for you. I don't like that man. I must get to know them better. Um, not, well, that person's stupid or I'm stupid because we can't both be right, you know? And so I'm going to pretty much go with the former. They're stupid. I'm not stupid. Uh, and so this is really nice. I think that you actually want intellectual diversity, which is known as free speech in some respects. And you need to try to hopefully train yourself that done well, this is good. Not, oh my God, I have to tell this ignoramus why they've got their head in their anus. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, to me, you should try to be internally a thinking like a scientist, but you should also try to be part of an ideas lab with wanting intellectual diversity in a way that's mutually positive sum, in a way that you play an infinite game, which is where both parties win. So yeah. All right, yeah. James, I'm going to roll. All right, Duncan, stay safe. Wash stay your hands. <laughs> Don't touch your face. Um, and, uh, yeah, other stuff. All right, cool. Catch you. Bye. Bye.